Well, um, so far, you know, as we've come through Bible Institute, we, we've uh, we covered a lot of really good stuff. And uh, everything is, you know, pretty much followed along the right line, what we wanted to do. We've defined the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven as the, really the theme of the whole Bible and then kind of built everything around that. Uh, <clears throat> I showed you the Old Testament, how it's built around the establishment of the nation of Israel going through those five phases. Uh, we talked about how the Old Testament uh, aspect is the nation of Israel. The New Testament is the church. Uh, I gave you, I think it was 17 um, fundamental aspects about the Bible uh, that you you want to learn your Bible, just study those 17. So you should be well on, on your way here uh, if you're following it. And then we got into all of the seven series last time or last last year, and we covered all of that. Doing all of that and getting all of that where we're at today, um, with where you're at today, um, we're going to now move into what I feel is the absolute um, hands down, set one thing that pulls the Bible all together. And we've got a lot of things that will tighten the, the definity of the Bible, a lot of things we've looked at, but now this is the, the missing element here that will uh, put everything together for you. Once we get done with this, there may be a few other things that we look at, and, but then we're going to start attacking the, the books of the Bible itself that we need to learn. And, uh, but we have to get this fundamentally down for you first, and it is the study of dispensations. And, uh, you know, I've given it to you before. I, I may even have given it to you here. I don't remember. I've done it several times. But I talked about the, the things that you lose when you, when you lose your Bible. And the Bible is very clear that there's a number of things that when you get the Bible taken from you, you lose these things. And when you lose these things, then you find yourself, unfortunately, in the state that Christianity is in today. And, you know, uh, so many things you lose uh, because it's dependent on what you do with the scriptures. And uh, you've heard me say it, it's, it's no new thing and it's certainly no secret. Uh, the main thing that you lose, well, maybe not the main thing, but certainly one of the key things is, is doctrine. And once you lose doctrine, you're going to lose all reality with anything in the scriptures that's true. And you find people today have problems with everything in the Bible for simply one or two reasons. Either they have no doctrine or they have false doctrine. Uh, doctrine will, the word doctrine, as you well know, simply means the, is the word means to teach. And it is the specific teachings uh, of the Bible based on, you know, what the Bible lays out. When the scribes and the Pharisees uh, had a problem with the Lord Jesus, uh, once it all gets cut down to the bottom line, what was the real problem? The real problem that they had with him, and it states this very clearly in the Gospels, is they had a problem with his doctrine. And then it says right after that, for he spoke uh, as one who had authority. And that is a great verse in the Bible because it tells us that doctrine will be our authority. And when you don't have doctrine, you'll have no authority. You can't have authority without doctrine, and you can't have doctrine without a final authority. 
And of course, that will, will be the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2.15 talks about writing, uh, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And, um, you know, you're either going to rightly divide it or you're going to wrongly divide it or you're not going to divide it at all. Those will be your three options. And you will find within what we call Christianity today, uh, everybody will fall in one of those three categories. They'll either rightly divide it, they'll either wrongly divide it, or they won't divide it at all. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of confusion today uh, on dispensationalism. So before we actually get into the dispensations, I, I want to take some time to lay out the whole concept of, of, of what you have so you, you know what you're up against out there. It isn't enough anymore just to know this is what the Bible teaches. Um, there's so many weird people out there and so many messed up aspects that you have to really now know not only um, what you believe, but why you believe it and why everybody else is, is really screwed up with the thing. So, you know, that's, that's, that's where we're at. Now, first of all, when it comes to dispensations, you'll have a group of people who don't uh, believe in it at all. Now, and I'm going to go through these in, in detail here this morning so you get a good understanding. So I'm just giving them to you now so you can list them out, but save some space for each one of them. So you have people who don't believe in, in dispensationalism at all. Um, they just won't, they don't, they don't see it. They don't accept it at all. And then you'll have those uh, that will be what I would call basic dispensationalists. And they will see the Old Testament versus the New Testament as two different dispensations. Um, they will look at, you know, uh, before the law, uh, where God deals with them as in, in their conscience with the Gentiles, then after the law is another dispensation. Um, and they'll, they'll obviously look at the New Testament uh, as a dispensation under grace. But that's about all the farther they will take it. And, and again, we'll talk about these people here in, in detail in a moment. Uh, then you have what I'd call a, a, a moderate dispensationalist. And that is, that's basically where we fall. And um, uh, we, don't, we don't force anything in the Bible. We don't make the Bible say anything that it doesn't clearly state. When we come up a passage of Scripture that we're not sure of, uh, at least I do anyhow, that I'm not sure of, I will tell you that. And I may even give you some, uh, some options for the verse uh, but I'll, I'll be very clear that there's nothing, I won't be dogmatic about it. And yet there are things in the Bible that I'm very dogmatic about because they're, they're proven deals. So, you know, uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, we talked about earlier, uh, talks about uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. And uh, what a moderate dispensationalist does, uh, what we are, uh, we follow the natural divisions of the Bible. And if you, if you learn your Bible the right way, these divisions just stand out to you. You don't have to look for them. You don't have to make them happen. Uh, if you just follow the procedure, and this is why when it comes to institute and teaching you the Bible, I've done it the way that I've done it. I've done it this way so you could, you know, get the background material get a good feel for things, 
And if you're doing your work with it after we're done here, you know, for the next month, then, you know, you're ready to see this and you'll be able to see how it, it, it all kind of begins to gel together now. Then you have uh, what we call the hyper-dispensationalist. Sometimes they're called ultra-dispensationalist. And they don't rightly divide uh, the Bible. They literally take a chainsaw of the Bible and cut it up so badly that they wind up taking three-quarters of the New Testament from you. And, uh, and as I said, I will go through each one of these uh, and explain each one today, and that's where we're going to take it today. I, I want to take my time with this. Uh, I don't want to just overload you with a lot of information because when we start to actually get into the dispensations, um, you're going to see where a lot of, you're going to see where it paid off. A lot of the material that I've already taught you, you're going to see crossing over again, and you're going to see it coming into play with with what I'm giving you now. And then there'll be stuff that you will get that you will add to that, and overall you'll get a complete picture of it. And uh, uh, in the day and age that we live in, uh, with so many things out there and so many guys out there. Uh, it's important to know who's who when it comes to dispensations. And uh, the first thing, and this is the mistake everybody makes, and it's the first thing I want to give you about understanding dispensations. And this is absolutely vital. To me, um, you know that I've said it many times, if you don't understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, you're going nowhere in the Bible. I mean, you are going nowhere. And along with that, if you don't get what I'm about to say to you about dispensations, you will go nowhere with dispensations. Uh, and this is, a, this is a teaching that is, a, I would call it a half-truth, but it's a half-truth that leaves the other half that you don't get of the truth really leaves you in trouble. And everybody teaches that dispensations uh, will be a period of time. That is the standard teaching with anybody just about who who teaches any form of dispensationalism. And basically that's true. Uh, but that's much more than that, and that is not the uh, biblical definition uh, unto itself. And with that incomplete uh, you know, definition, this is where men start to get into trouble. And uh, this is what ultimately will lead to them not fully rightly dividing the word of truth or getting hung up on something. By the Bible's definition, a dispensation will be not just a period of time, but more importantly, it'll be the way that God deals with man differently, not just a time period. It's a time period, but if you leave it at that, then you lose the central aspect of the dispensation. Obviously, history is time, so as God is dealing with man, it's going to fall into different periods. But it, the emphasis is not on it's just a period of time. The emphasis is in each dispensation, God is dealing with man differently than the last dispensation or the one that's going to follow. If you don't get that, then you may get dispensations in the concept, but you will never get it as it fits into the Bible. And this is where a lot of guys will get messed up. And uh, 
you're going to read, you know, some great books. Uh, Larkin's got a book on dispensational truth. Uh, Ruckman has a book, a little pamphlet on dispensationalism. Um, he's also got one on hyper-dispensationalism. Uh, you're going to find that uh, there are some decent books out there on it. And you're going to find that everybody varies a little bit on how they list the dispensations. Uh, I've seen guys that, that said there were 10 dispensations. I've seen guys that said there were 12. Uh, when I teach you dispensationalism, I basically teach 11 dispensations. Uh, it, the 11 fit better in the Bible. Uh, I, I don't argue with a guy who does 10 or 12. Uh, it, it's not about a loss of material. It's about how he divides that material up and I can be okay with that uh, as long as he's getting out the material. But from my perspective, uh, the easiest, most understandable, the most biblical way, if you just follow the natural divisions, will be uh, 11 divisions or 11 dispensations. And the word, and I'll show you why that is. Now, the word dispensation is only found four times in your Bible. And I want to look at each one of these, and, uh, and, and I'm going to show you something. And this is how I do things. I, when I just told you that a, a dispensation uh, was not a period of time, but how God is dealing with people, that wasn't just a random statement that I like. That's based on the evidence in the Bible, uh, and I want to show you that evidence. Come over to Ephesians chapter 1 first. I think, and I, and I try to instill this in you, but it's so true of, of Christianity today. Nobody really pays attention to what they read. And uh, I think they read it and they'll get a general consensus of the verse, which is obviously good. But you want more than that. You want to see what the verse is actually saying. Now, Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of time. Now, we'll talk about that dispensation as we, we, get, we get farther into these 11. So don't worry about it right now. He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. Now, the first thing I want you to see is, he said that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, now, that is a period of time, but notice the emphasis is not on the period of time. The emphasis is on what he is doing in that period of time. Do you see that? He's gathering together all things in him. So by its own defining itself, a dispensation, yeah, I know it's a period of time, but you've got to look deeper than that. Each dispensation will be something about what God is doing differently, and you've got to see that. Now come over to Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> 3 1. <clears throat> for this cause I, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. 
if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when we read, we may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now you see that? That clearly is telling you that he is doing something different here. Yeah, it's a period of time, but he's telling you, which in other ages it wasn't made known, but it is now. Every time you find in the four places in the Bible the word dispensation, it clearly defines it as something God is doing differently. All right, now look at Colossians. All right, look at uh, Colossians one twenty-five. This is along the same lines as the last one. Wherefore, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Now you see that? There it is again. <clears throat> a dispensation is not just a period of time. It's a time when God does something differently that he's clearly telling you was never done before. Now the last one is 1 Corinthians. Pick it up in verse 16. <clears throat> uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9. For lo, I preach the gospel. I have nothing to glory of, <clears throat> for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will... A dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily that I, when I preach the gospel, uh, I, make, uh, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my powers in the gospel. So here again, he's talking about the dispensation of the gospel that Paul has. And this is something that has never, never, never happened before. And the trained eye, when you read verses like this, will understand that, yeah, it has to be a period of time because it's a place in history. But the Bible never defines it just as a period of time. In the four places you find it, if you're looking and you're knowing what you're looking for or you're just trained to look at things, 
um, you'll see that it, it's more than that. It's, it's how God is doing something with man now in this dispensation that he didn't do before. And this is why even the guys who are basic dispensationalists, they'll, they'll get some dispensation down, but because they don't see the real definition of the dispensation, they never, they never, they never see the full weight of it. Now, <clears throat> let's go back for a moment and let's look at these four groups because we need to thoroughly understand this. Now that we know what a dispensation is, Let's thoroughly begin to, to look at this and to uh, put it all together. Now, the first group, well, as I said, they'll, they'll not believe in any form of dispensationalism. Um, they are so out of touch and out of tune with the Bible that the Bible is really not relevant to them in any way, shape, or form for a book that they're going to use for anything. The Bible to them is a symbol. It's, a, it, it's like the logo of Christianity. It's like, you know, but it doesn't mean anything. It's like when you buy a Ford, they put the Ford emblem on it. Uh, but you know what? It, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's still a Ford, whether the emblem is on it or not. But you recognize it by the name, and that's how they, you recognize Christianity because, oh, they got a Bible but it doesn't really mean anything. Most of these groups are screwed up in many other areas. Most of them are, are either amillennial or postmillennial as they view the coming of Christ. So that in itself will send you down the wrong road big time. Basically, these will be your Protestant churches. These will be the Lutheran church. These will be the... Presbyterian Church, the Episcopal Church, um, the Methodist Church. There'll be your Protestant churches that really don't have any connection to the Bible. Along with that, you'll find that some of the neo-evangelical churches that uh, is the mainstream of Christianity today will fall into this. Uh, in any group, whether it be Baptist, whether it be the neo-evangelical crowd, you'll always have the orthodox diehards, you'll have the moderate, and you'll have the fringe people. In this case, it would be the moderate to the fringe um, would, would, would come along those ways. And, and, and you're, seeing it, you're seeing this spread more and more uh, through what we call Christianity today. Uh, all neo-orthodoxy churches would, would follow this and, and accept no. Uh, even though they know there's an Old Testament and the New Testament, they don't really see the difference, so they don't stipulate it. There is no rightly dividing the word in any way, shape, or form. You'll even find some Baptist churches that are this way, but they would be on the very low end. Uh, you know, within the Baptist circles today, you have, you have what we call uh, the fundamental Baptists or the conservatives, that's what's left of the, the old guard. Then you have the GRB, which has uh, been around for quite a while. And then you have the Southern Baptist. Uh, and then you have what is called the American Baptist. The Southern Baptist and the American Baptist would be on the low end of, of Baptist churches. And you're going to find 
um, that uh, all of the American Baptists, they are so out of touch. They got Baptist on their name, but they believe anything. Uh, there was a big American Baptist church down in Florida that when you go into the lobby, there's a statue to Jesus Christ, Muhammad, and Buddha all in the chapel. And um, they're just, they're just the, the absolute mess. Southern Baptist is not far behind. Um, the Southern Baptists, as we know, basically fall into two groups. The real liberal group, who would be completely against it, and uh, the more fundamental Baptist, Southern Baptist, who probably would not be against it, but they're just so stupid that they never figure it out. And uh, and then you have the uh, GRB, which have pretty much shifted completely away from the Bible, and you'll find a mixed bag uh, within that. Nobody will ever approach it uh, in any way that is remotely connected with of the Bible being rightly divided. And, and again, and it's because that in every one of these, the Bible has ceased to be relevant to anything to them. Uh, it's just a status symbol. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where if you want to be Christian, you know, have a Bible. But it doesn't mean anything to them. It doesn't really matter. Uh, they have no doctrine whatsoever. <clears throat> They'll spiritualize everything. When they come to the book of Revelation, which is one of the greatest doctrinal books in the Bible, they spiritualize it all. Uh, they, don't, they don't see it in any way, shame or, shape, or form, uh, anything that uh, um, teaches any doctrinal teaching or truth. It's all allegorical, which means nothing, spiritual. And they'll spiritualize away everything. Now, the second group will be... Uh, what I call your basic dispensationalist. And, and, and you get somebody else's book, he may call them differently. He may even add some, break them down more. To me, I just keep it simple. Uh, and these would be your, your basic dispensationalist. This will be most of your Baptists today, uh, most of your evangelicals. Um, I do know some Baptist churches that rightly divide the word of truth correctly. I don't know of any evangelical churches that do. Um, they're just so far from the Bible uh, that, you know, if there's one out there, I've, I've never seen it. And basically, they will follow the undeniable that there's a difference in the Old Testament before the law, and then there's a difference when the law comes into effect up to Christ, and then there's a difference in the New Testament church from that point on. And so, you know, that's basically where they go with it. Some of them may look at the tribulation, the millennium. It depends. Uh, you're finding that, that more and more uh, churches are dumping the doctrine of the rapture. Uh, they don't to my knowledge, they don't have a good explanation how we get out of here before the tribulation. So the next step is that most of us are going through the tribulation, the church, and all of that, just completely off track. And that's because they're very shallow in their teaching on, on, uh, uh, on, on the Bible. Um, the Bible colleges have turned out pastors who are very unqualified to do anything with the Bible. They come out of Bible college being 
talked out of their Bible, um, got a system that is so non-biblical that it can never accomplish anything. And we've now seen five or six, seven generations of that. And uh, the main sphere of Christianity today will be in the neo-evangelical world, guys like Rick Warren and John MacArthur, uh, you know, the big guys out there that, uh, um, that are totally, completely um, the, the hallmark of what everybody looks to. But they're so far away from the Bible that it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And uh, along with it, when you don't have doctrine, you may have these guys who stand up and everybody sees, but the myriad of, of people underneath just get all kind of crazy stuff going on. So this is what you find. They will teach you that, and, uh, and this is a, and, and again, there's some Baptists that are in this. Uh, uh, I would say that most Baptist churches are here. And this is where you'll find the teaching that you hear so much today that we take flack over uh, all the time uh, is the fact that uh, salvation is the same for everybody throughout the Bible. And, you know, Thursday night we talked about those general statements that people make, like we're all going to spend eternity in heaven, which is not true once you get into the doctrinal side of it. And... You know, the statement salvation is the same for everybody all through the Bible is another one of those uh, half-truth statements um, because we know that it's the same in, in one sense. Wherever you go in the Bible, you have grace and you have faith. And without those two, nowhere can you have salvation. But that's, that's where they make their mistake. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little more when we get into it here down the line someplace. Uh, they teach, and you hear this all the time, they'll teach you that Old Testament people look forward to the cross and we in the church look back to the cross. That's probably one of the most simplest explanations uh, that people fall into that makes it, sound so believable. Uh, but I don't know of any teaching that is more damnable in its origin than that kind of teaching. Whoever would say that, and everybody says it, but whoever says that, whoever you hear saying that, you know two things about them. One, they have no clue about the Bible. So, uh, you know, they're very limited in, in understanding anything, even to make that statement. And then the second thing, you realize that they're not a follower of the Bible. They got that from somebody else, either in Bible college, some spiritual guru that they look up to that is like John MacArthur, John Wolverd, uh, you know, these guys all will teach that. And it, it seems today that we we worship people more than we do the Word of God and God Himself. And we were so quick to, because a man says it, that and, and he's popular and he's perceived as somebody great in Christianity, that he just could never lie to us. And, of course, that's just not true. I've never taught anybody in all my years in the ministry just to believe whatever I tell you. Uh, the Bible says prove all things. If you fall into that trap that 
you just believe whatever I say without going back and investigating it, you know, you're going to get somewhere along the line, maybe not with me, but with somebody, you're going to get, you're going to get hung up. And uh, you don't take anything anybody says. It's not a, a personal attack of, well, why would you question me? No, no, you're supposed to do that. I don't believe anything anybody tells me until I can find it in the scriptures. And I have people tell me a lot of things. You'll see people on Thursday night, if you've been on a regular on Thursday night for a couple of years, you'll find people who will, who will ask the question, you know, and they'll come up with some, some cockeyed theory that, you know, that they put together in the Bible. And I will just simply, you know, ask them for the, for the paper trail. Where is the trail of truth that, that brings you to this point? And if you don't have a trail of truth that substantiates verse upon verse, principle upon principle, to get you to a point, then, you know what, you're, you're in the wrong camp. I mean, it isn't going to work. You've got to have established truth will always have with it, it being established as truth. I mean, you won't find one teaching in the Bible that just stands by itself. But that's what we think. That's what we, we want. That's what every cult does. They'll take one truth, baptism for salvation, and they'll stand on that truth. But if you take that concept and run it through the Bible, you'll find that that truth won't stand. Every truth that we put out has to have a track record of established truth through principles that bedrocks that truth of what you're saying. And if it doesn't, then, you know, then it's just your conjecture and it's just your idea, which there's nothing wrong with. I mean, that's obviously how you learn, but you also got to learn that you could save yourself a lot of time coming up with goofy ideas if you first can't find the track record of established truth that brought you to that goofy idea. Goofy ideas are just that, goofy ideas. What takes the goofiness out is when you have a track record of truth that brings you to that point that you can systematically go here, connect the dots to where you want to go. And, uh, you know, you can't do that with people who don't really understand how to put the Bible together. And that concept of Old Testament people look forward to the cross and we look back to the cross I don't know of any teaching that is more messed up and screwed up and probably gets more people messed up. It was my pet. Oh, no, you kid, What was it? What was it? It was a spider. That was Charlotte. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Did you, was you here when we, before we watched the Super Bowl, when we watched the D.I. movie about the Marine Corps? When that guy killed that sand flea and they made him go find it and bury that sand flea, you find that spider, you bury my spider. I don't know of another truth anywhere that is so fouled up or another teaching so fouled up anywhere in Christianity than that one. That one leads to an endless road of issues and problems. And uh, these guys... They, they, they can't get the Bible together because they refuse the dispensational aspect of rightly dividing it up. Wherever they see the word church, they will automatically think it's talking about their church. 
and they'll, they'll, they'll never understand that dispensationally that there are different churches in the Bible down through the history, dispensationally. They see the word church and they just think that that means the church that we all belong to, see? And that's just not true because they can't rightly divide it. When they see the word gospel, um, they think that, that wherever you find the word gospel, that it's the gospel that we all preach and teach and know and love that, you know, that, uh, that gets us saved. And, and again, they can't see the difference of that. And, and, and I'm going to, when we get start coming, I'm going to show you these as we come through. You know, these are the guys that in, when they get to Genesis chapter 6 would, would teach you that the sons of God were saved people marrying unsaved people. And the reason for that is because they believe that everybody in the Bible is saved just like you. They believe that, that, uh, um, that those people back there were looking forward to the cross just as we supposedly look back to the cross. So they see the term son of God. Never can they rightly divide the scriptures to see the Bible's definition of the sons of God. They connect it with now are we the sons of God in 1 John and Gospel of John, which says to many has received them that became the sons of God, even they believe on his name. And they think it means the same. That's how shallow they are. And, uh, you know, they, they just don't, they're not, not able to, clearing it up and rightly divided, and it all goes back to their inability to be able to rightly divide the dispensations out. So they're very shallow when it comes to any real Bible doctrine. And they'll know some, th- and I say this all the time, they'll know a lot of things about the Bible. Um, they'll have some great practical truth that maybe and people are drawn to this today because their problems are so many in their own lives and in their families that somebody gets up and gives them a little hope of truth in a very basic, milk toast, practical way. They'll elevate the guy like he really knows the Bible. But when it came to really understanding the Bible, the guy would fall on his face. He knows some things about the Bible, but he doesn't know the Bible. And that's the problem today. And, uh, you know, they... They just don't, they don't have a clue. Uh, you know, in the Bible, by, it, by their names, the word, by the word itself, the word gospel, you have five different gospels in your Bible, and none of them are the same. But if you don't understand the definition of the word gospel in the first place, and don't recognize that the dispensations and you realize that just because Paul preached his gospel doesn't mean that every time you find the word gospel uh, that it, it's the same gospel. I mean, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, you'll find where the Bible says the gospel was preached to Abraham. Now, if, if, that, wasn't the, if that wasn't a proof text verse that Abraham was looking forward to the cross... And say, therefore, God preached the gospel to him, and then he, he believed the gospel, and then he looked forward to the cross. Now, 
That's exactly how they take it. But when you go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, which is the passage that they're talking about in Galatians 3, verse 18, you'll find that the context back there has nothing to do with Christ dying on the cross. The good news that Abraham got was not the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ was coming. The good news that Abraham got was someday his seed is going to be like the stars of heaven and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. And of course, from Abraham comes the nation of Israel from where the nation gets blessed. Notice it says, here again, I can't help it, a guy can't read. Notice it says, nations. The gospel that you and I have isn't for nations. That's the kingdom of heaven. The gospel that you and I have never converted a nation, will never convert a nation, won't get a nation saved, but it will get individuals saved within that nation. But even at that, it'll never make that nation a Christian nation. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. Israel in the Old Testament was not a Christian nation. They're God's nation by which God wanted them to take the good news, the gospel, that through the nation of Israel was the world's salvation. That's a large cry from the gospel that you and I are preaching. But you see, when you don't get the trail of evidence or the context, then you're free to, to, you can see how people get messed up. And that verse, I've heard them say it. I've heard them preach it. I've sat there and watched a guy talk about it, how Abraham uh, got preached the gospel, and that's how he knew, you know, that Christ was coming, da, da 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 and all those things, and he looked forward to the cross based on that verse back there in Galatians chapter uh, 18. And, uh, and then going back to Genesis 15, never seeing the context. There isn't any place, any verse within 100 million light years of those two verses that even suggests Christ's death on the cross. It's about nations. It's about his seed. It's about the stars of heaven. And uh, it has nothing to do with individuals. Over there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, here's another one. He says the gospel was preached to somebody in Abraham's bosom. Now, we automatically tend to believe that he went down and he preached to them uh, that now they're all part of the church and all they had to do was, you know, Christ died. So therefore, and of course, evidence for that, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. The, the, whoever he's preaching to, obviously in the saints of the earth, whoever he's preaching to, uh, forget the word gospel and look at the concept of the definition. Whatever he's preaching, he's preaching good news. And I would say, based on the chain of evidence in the Bible, that he's not preaching about the fact that you're all going to go to heaven and get glorified bodies, because they don't. I would say the good news, the gospel here, is the fact that up to this point, Hebrews chapter 1, 2, and 3, the devil had the keys of death and hell, and now Christ has taken those keys through the resurrection. And I would think that the good news, or the gospel in this case, was the fact that he's jingling the keys and I'm going to lock it. And then it tells you that he leads captivity captive. He doesn't lead them captivity captive from uh, that captivity there is death. And up to that point, the devil had the keys to death and hell. 
So based, again, on the evidence, and I don't know for sure what he said, but it's pretty obvious from the chain of evidence that we have that it had to do with the good news that the resurrection, he got the keys to death and hell and was going to set the captives of death free. He said nothing about their salvation. Nothing at all about their salvation. Then you have the third one, <clears throat> is you have the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom. And that will be found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. There again, that has nothing to do <coughs> with... <coughs> I'm not a Roman Catholic. You save that for your Catholic friends. <laughs> this is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the kingdom to Israel. This has nothing to do with the church. Uh, the salvation here, or the gospel here that he's preaching, again, is, the, is to, uh, based on the first coming of Christ, the coming Messiah to Israel. And then if you go to Matthew chapter 28, which, again, we all take as the missionary call to the church, where it says, go unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We lift that out and use that as a statement in missions, but if, you, again, you look at the context, that has nothing to do with the church age. If you want the commission to the church, for the New Testament church, you won't go to Mark 16, 16, or Matthew 28. You'll go to Acts chapter 11, 12, and 13 with the church at Antioch. But that's what we do because we don't know how to rightly divide it. And, uh, and then again, we have to only take part of that verse out. Um, because if you took the whole verse, it doesn't fit into the church. So there again, we like to pick and choose because we don't know what to do with the Bible. So the gospel of the kingdom is to Israel. This is where they're called out in Matthew chapter 10. They're clearly told when they go to preach this gospel, gospel of the kingdom, that uh, they are not to go to the Gentiles, strictly to the house of Israel. So again, when you don't know your Bible and you can't establish the contexts and a chain of evidence with the scriptures, you can see how it all just looks like it all run together. And that's what they do. That's what they do. And the only people uh, dumber than the guys that are preaching this are the people who are listening to them and believing it. And that's unfortunately the way it is. Then you have uh, in Revelation 14, 6, you have the fourth gospel by name, and that is the everlasting gospel. And that is the gospel that is preached during the tribulation period that's going to lead into the millennium, which is going to be Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, uh, that goes on forever. That certainly isn't our gospel. Our gospel is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. And this is the gospel of the grace of God that was given to Paul that we, uh, you know, that we, um, that we follow. And so the only way you can keep these, these gospels straight is through dispensationalism. And when you lose that and you don't get into the, uh, where we are at, then, you know, you, this is the problem you get into. And these guys, they all think the gospel's the same. Now, those are five 
places in the Bible where the word gospel is used. Four of them have nothing to do with us. But remember, the word gospel means good news. So there's many other places in there, even though the Bible doesn't call them the gospel, that somebody is getting good news, which could be legitimately based on the Bible's definition, a gospel. My point is that these guys never see that. Uh, you know, along with that, and we'll get through, we'll get into this when we come on through it, you'll find that in the household of God, uh, there are seven members of that family. We've been through that before in Bible study and maybe even here, I don't remember, but seven members of the household of God from Genesis to Revelation, they will fit in these 11 dispensations and you got to be able to see them uh, along with the different gospels, along with the different churches. And uh, you'll find that uh, there's seven churches throughout the Bible. When we get over to Acts chapter 2 and we find the word church there, the guys who uh, are your basic dispensationalists or no dispensations, they will all make that the church that we all belong to. And of course, uh, that's, that's not true. Uh, the word church means exclusia, which means called out. So anytime a group is called out to do something for God, by the Bible's definition, there would be a church. Sometimes they're called a church, sometimes they're not. You don't go by, here it is, you don't go by the name, you go by the definition. And of course, Adam and Eve were a church. And they're the first church. He's a type of Christ, she's a type of the church. They're the first one. Noah would be your second. Uh, Abraham would be your third. He's called out of the Ur of Chaldees. Israel would be your fourth. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, verse 32, Israel is called, looking back, the church in the wilderness. It was a called-out assembly long before that the church that you and I belong to ever was in existence. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, you have the 10 apostles being called out. They would be a church. And then, of course, uh, you have us uh, in the spiritual body, the church, the book of Ephesians. And then, of course, in the tribulation period, you have seven churches that are actual churches in the tribulation period where there is no church age, there is no Holy Spirit of God in the sense that uh, it is today. And uh, so it's, it's another, whole, another whole world. And of course, they have no clue about these because they're either no dispensationalist or they're base, basic and they just follow the basic lines. <clears throat> now our third group, our third group were what I call moderate dispensationalists. And this will be where we are. Now sometimes, just so you know, the other two groups that we've already talked about are so messed up and so know nothing that with what we believe looks so radical that they'll call us hyper-dispensationalists. And that's because they never in a day in their life really knew what a hyper-dispensational was in the first place. Uh, to them, a hyper, we're hyper-dispensationalists. To us, we're not hyper-dispensationalists. We're just somebody who knows a lot more about the Bible than they do. And, and that's where we're at. But we're, we're what we call moderate dispensationalists. Moderate, and you want to get this, 
moderate dispensationalism, and, and people will call it by different things. It, it, don't worry about that. This is my own terminology based on how I put it together. But moderate dispensationalists, what we are, will always be based on established truth. What you and I believe, without exception, has been established down through the history of the church all the way back to Antioch. The moderate dispensationalist in our time, once men began to break out of the Catholic Church and to write, uh, you don't find any real writings during the Dark Ages because the Catholic Church is suppressing everybody and murdering everybody. But you'll find around 1700s, guys like uh, David Gregory, who was the math, math professor at Oxford. And at that point, Oxford was a Christian Bible college. And he's a dispensationalist. Then you have guys like, you know, uh, uh, George Wilson, who lived in the early 1800s. Uh, you had C.I. Schofield, who put out a Schofield reference Bible. He was a Civil War general, and uh, his old Schofield reference Bible for many years was the standard reference Bible of, if that's your deal, wanting to get somebody else's notes. He was a dispensationalist. You'll find that when you get a new Schofield, that it has been reworked by all of the neo-evangelical crowd, and they worked and done their best to take all of the... Um, dispensational stuff out of his Bible. Um, in the new Schofield over there in Acts where it talks about baptism, uh, C.I. Schofield in the original had the right concept. In the, new CI, in the new Schofield reference, the Board of Editors took out what they said and called baptism one of the many sacraments that's given to the church. So you can see where that's going. Uh, so you had C.I. Schofield. You had a guy by the name of John Darby. Obviously, we all know Clarence Larkin, who lived around 1900. Uh, Sir Robert Dick Wilson, uh, latter part of the 1800s. Um, you know, uh, a long list of men who uh, taught what they taught, not some new idea that they just came up with, but they they basically fundamentally stayed with the established truth that can be documented all the way back through uh, the church history. And uh, uh, they go back through the uh, Bible line uh, all the way up to a guy like Harry Ironsides in 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, J. Vernon McGee was a dispensationalist. Um, R.G. Lee, um, you know, uh, Victor Sears, Howard Sears, uh, all of those guys were were come up in that and were dispensationalists um, up to J. Frank Norris and then right up to um, uh, Pete Ruckman and, you know, brought the line through to where, where we're at today. And uh, the key to a moderate dispensationalist, what we are, is that we deal with the verses in the Bible in the context is that we find them. That is, that doesn't sound like much, but that is absolutely, absolutely vital. Um, where the other guys 
when they come up against something that they don't agree with or don't understand. To them, if I can't understand it, it's got to be wrong. What they do is they either change it or they pretend it is a mistake or they go back to the Greek and get rid of it, uh, never ever just taking it as they find it and, and doing it with the context. I, I'm asked a lot by, uh, by people, and you, and you hear this, uh, I'm asked many times by guys who believe the King James Bible. If, if I have a problem with a guy who believes the King James Bible, but he'll also use the Greek uh, to, to study his Bible. And I get questioned from time to time by people, do you have a problem with that? And my answer to that is, what do I care? I don't care what he does. I don't care if he uses Playboy and Hustler magazine to get his truth. None of my business. I don't care. But I will tell you this. If you're doing that, you're doing it as an exercise in fertility. Fertility, not fertility. Fertility. <laughs> Who knows? You're not going to get any truth out of it. And if you do, uh, I guarantee you I can go to the Bible without wasting all the time in the Greek and get you the same truth. The Greek and the Hebrew will do absolutely nothing for you. If you want to pretend it does, so you can say to your buddies, well, I, I use the Greek. Yeah, I studied the Greek. I know a little Greek. Yeah, I do too. He runs a pastry shop right down the street. What's your point? <laughs> it's a thing where that's your deal. Uh, I, I, I don't claim that piety. Uh, I, I don't think learning Greek and Hebrew, will, and I know it won't, won't help you at all when it comes to the Bible. But if that is your bag and that is your deal and you get some warm, fuzzy feeling from it, then, then go for it. But, uh, but it's a thing where it's just, it just it doesn't work. And uh, if you just stay with the book in the English language that it gave it to you, and you follow the context and everything else I've given you, um, you'll not get screwed up in anywhere in the Bible. Is there a question over here? Somebody hand? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you mentioned that largely Howard Sears. 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 Yeah, Howard Sears. Howard and Victor Sears were, were brothers. They were pastors down, in, down south. Um, they are good flat preach, boy. I ain't kidding you. Yeah. What was the first name before George Wilson? I don't remember. David Gregory, yeah. Boy, old Victor Sears and Howard Sears were flat preach, man. These guys were all hillbillies. They got sophisticated and never got educated out of the book. And I heard them both preach before, luckiest time of my life. I heard them both preach. Old Victor Sears, his voice sounded like two gears grinding together. But brother, when he spit it out, man, it went... It, it hurt your eardrums. It, it was so sharp. He was something else. Great practical guys. Great preaching guys. I heard the greatest message I ever heard on the second coming of Christ, and I copied the message and preached my own version of it. Better than his, I might add. Oh, that's on tape. It's a, it's a showstopper. But he, he, he was my inspiration for it was uh, um, <laughs> oh, B.R. Lakin. 
He preached. I was there when he preached it. He pre and that was and I was just a young guy. I never forgot that message. And when I I, I copied what he had, he 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 back then they preached shorter messages. I took his message and then added to it a systematic theology through the whole Bible showing the second coming of Christ by type from Genesis right on through. And it was the greatest message I ever heard him, everybody preach on the second coming of Christ. He started out by reading Revelation chapter 6 and pointing out the two white horse riders. Everybody else thought they were the same back in his day. He is something else, man. Then, as always, we got old in life, and Jerry Falwell saw the opportunity to have the great spiritual icon uh, at Liberty University. So he takes him in, takes care of him, gives him a place to stay down there, which, hey, I'm all for. Has him sit on the platform, everybody out there thinking the great B.R. Lakin, and he just kind of folded into all of that, you know, which I, I'm not criticizing him. Uh, I'm just telling you, that's the way they all go. And, uh, and you never let those guys... You know, it's amazing to me. God took care of that guy all of his life, but when he got old, suddenly Jerry Falwell had to take care of him. Uh, I guess, anyway. So these guys, you know, these guys were, were really where it was at. And like I said, when we, when we stick with it, when we get something in the Bible, we don't, we don't find a way to change it. We don't change the Bible to fit what we believe. We fit and change what we believe to fit the Bible. Most people cannot do that. And uh, they're not honest enough with themselves and, and the Word of God. And, you know, and as the, uh, you know, and, and as a moderate dispensationalist, we only use the Bible, as I said. And <clears throat> we know that God deals with men differently. We, we don't get caught up in that trap. We completely see and understand the absolute ridiculous idea that men were saved uh, the same all the way down through the Bible. I mean, I, 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 can't even, I can't even begin to speak to that. If, if a guy got up on Thursday night Bible study and said, you know, I, I, I don't agree um, with your stand. I believe that, that everybody was saved all the way through the Bible uh, the same way. I, I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't even know what to say to him. I mean, I'm the dumbest guy on the planet, but even I can't get down underneath that depth of stupidity. I don't even know where to start with that. I mean, I, I guess we just sing just as I am and try to get you saved again and work it over again. I don't know. That is, that is the stupidest, most... If there's any statement that you're saying with your mouth one thing, but by also saying it, you're admitting that you know nothing about the Bible, it would be a statement like that. And it's ridiculous. The idea that, you know, as I, we already said, that the Old Testament, they're looking toward the cross. Uh, and as we look back, it's, it's totally ridiculous. Uh, and, and we understand, as moderate dispensationists, that's totally impossible. That's like saying that Jesus didn't come from, when he went back to heaven, he stopped at Jupiter and Mars and Venus you have the same, it's ridiculous. And to try to make those kind of statements. Now, we understand as dispensationalists 
Grace and faith were always the key components to any man's salvation. But what they don't get, one, you have to have grace to even be saved. That's God giving you the unmerited favor to be saved if you choose to. But then you have faith. And when we see grace and faith, we put it in the context of as we know grace and faith. And grace is a, the Bible says that Noah found grace. Grace is an operation throughout the whole Bible or nobody could get saved. The real question is faith. Faith in what? That's the question. Somebody said, well, Abraham's faith was looking forward to the cross. Really? Well, in the book of Hebrews, it says that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Not Christ. But you see, when you don't know how to read, you can make bold statements like that until somebody who knows the Bible better than you do takes you to Hebrews, and then you've got to explain yourself. And that's where they get into problems. One, the people that they're putting it out to are dumber than they are. And so nobody ever questions them on them. You let them come in here on a Thursday night. And, uh, you know, if you want to see a pair of knobby knees, when we take his pants off, you will see them. <laughs> I mean, it's just that simple. And, and you, know, you know how Noah got grace? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know how Noah got saved? He got saved by exercising faith of what God told him to do in building a boat in a world that God said he was going to destroy with rain in a world that it had never rained. That's faith in something God told him to do. I'm going to tell you something. He could have looked forward to the cross all he wanted. There's no place in the Bible that even suggests that. But if he was and he didn't build the boat, he drowned it like everybody else. God gave him the grace to get saved, but the faith that he exercised isn't what God told him to do in building a boat. In other words, dispensationalism and salvation through the different dispensations will always be the same grace. It'll always be the same faith, but it won't always be exercised the same way. When God, when Abraham got saved, he, God gave him the grace to get saved. He had the faith to believe in what God said. And that was the, that was the essence of God giving him his righteousness. It was what he said about the stars and his seed, and the Bible says, and God counted it to him as righteousness. There's nothing there about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But you see, when you stick with the context, so it's always been grace and it's always been faith. Grace is universal. Faith is not. Faith is in you trespassing faith in whatever God told you to do. In the Old Testament nation of Israel, they had to have the grace that God gave them. We know they're under the law, but they had to exercise faith in that law to keep it. In the church age, it's grace and faith. But it's my same grace, but my faith is different. Where Noah's faith was based in building a boat, where Abraham's faith was built on the stars, my faith is built on God telling me that a dead Jew that died 2,000 years ago had enough power in his blood to redeem the world. Do you believe that? Amen. Faith in that. 
And in the tribulation, Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, you have the tribulation saints, they have to have the faith in Jesus Christ and they have to keep the Old Testament law, the commandments. So it's, it changes. And a guy who does not accept that is someone who fundamentally knows nothing about the Bible. He's a pretender. He's a pretender. And he comes to the place where he pretends he knows the Bible. And he, maybe he knows some things about the Bible. You set him down with an open Bible and take his goofy statements and make him run the chain of evidence. He's in trouble. For instance, we know that somebody can lose their salvation in the Old Testament and in the tribulation period, but they can't in the church age. So if you could lose your salvation and you can't lose it in the church age, how is the salvation the same? Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 18. Verse 24. If you don't have these marked in your Bible, now is the best chance you'll ever have. Verse 24. But when the righteous, there's a saved man. He's righteous. Everybody see that? But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he shall he had done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed and in his sin that he hath sinned. In them shall he die. There's a man who had God's righteousness. He left that righteousness and now he dies in his sin. Now what do you do with that? Salvation's the same all the way through? Really? Really? Come in Ezekiel chapter 3. Verse 20. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, I and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because thou hast not given him warning he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Now there's a man who had righteousness, and then he loses it. Pardon me, honey? I can't hear you. You get it? Okay. Now, we all know the famous passage in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46. Ten virgins, five are wise, five are foolish. Five of them lose their salvation. And it's a thing where, what do you do with that? And of course, all you do by making statements like that, all you do 
All you do is just declare to the world and everybody on planet Earth that you know nothing about the Bible. Absolutely nothing. And you're better off just to go be a used car salesman than to get into the Bible teaching business. All right, look at, uh, look at Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, I want to show you something. Now, this is one of the greatest little verses tucked away in your Bible you'll ever see. And if you don't have this marked, you ought to mark it. If you don't mark it, you definitely will lose your salvation on this one. Habakkuk chapter 2. Verse 4, Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. In other words, the righteousness of an Old Testament man is justified by his own faith in what God tells him to do now. When Paul put this in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 or 17, he quotes this verse, but because Paul knows dispensations, here it says the just shall live by his faith, meaning the Old Testament man's faith. In Romans, in a dispensation of the church, Paul says, quoting the verse, the just shall live by faith. He takes out the word his because the word his will not fit dispensationally from the Old Testament to the church age. You're welcome. <laughs> That's some Bible you got. There in one verse, he showed you the difference in dispensation that Paul understood that he couldn't quote the Old Testament verse exactly because Paul knew in the Old Testament they were saved differently than in his gospel. So he used the verse, but he left out the his. <laughs> You're an idiot. Absolutely bonafide, certified, constitutionalized, constituted an idiot <laughs> to think that you could Lose your salvation. You everybody saved down through the Bible was saved the same way. And there are people in the Bible in the Old Testament and the tribulation that actually can lose their salvation. And the reason is because they're not the same salvation. And, you know, what are, what are you going to do? We understand as moderate dispensationalists why in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, that you find the tree of life popping up again. Oh, my, 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 my. And by the way, the only Greek manuscript in existence that has Revelation 22:14 in it will be the Texas Receptus out of Antioch that your King James Bible comes from. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and every other messed with demonic manuscript out there, they have conveniently taken Revelation 22:14 out. Do you know why? Because they don't know what to do with it because they're not dispensationalists, and they can't even begin to remotely fathom why you could have a tree of life in the Old Testament in the garden, but then it pops up again in eternity, because we all know salvation's the same way. So what they all do, get rid of the verse. That's what they do. That's what they all do. 
And that's why, you know, we take the verses the way they are. And when we can't figure it out, we give God the benefit of the doubt that he's right and we're wrong. And then pray about it till God gives us the light on it. And of course, that's not what they do. They already know what they want to believe. They built their whole life, their reputation, and their ministries on it. They couldn't change now. So when they come up against something, they don't know what to do with it. They either change it, step around it, get rid of it, or ignore it. You see, we know why that could never be. We know why that, that salvation could never be the same throughout the Bible. We know grace and faith. We understand that. But we know why it could never be in the Old Testament or the tribulation uh, like it is for us because Colossians chapter 2 verses uh, talks about the doctrine of spiritual circumcision. And once you understand the doctrine of spiritual circumcision, you realize that that spiritual circumcision could only come uh, to the body of Christ after Christ's death because of his death. So everybody in the Old Testament had no basis for the same salvation. But having said that, the doctrine of spiritual circumcision is rejected by everybody today. What do they do with Colossians 2? Your guess is as good as mine. I've never heard a satisfactory explanation of it. They just don't believe it. And, uh, it, and so when you get over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, He that is born of God doth not commit sin, there again, they run right up against the brick wall. So what do they do? They change the word commit to practice because they don't understand. They've rejected dispensationalism. They rejected the different salvations. They rejected the different gospels. They rejected the salvation different. They rejected the doctrine of spiritual circumcision. So now you run up against a verse that your only alternative is to get rid of it. Always stay away completely from any man who changes what the Bible says and does not stay with what it says and then go through the established truth to show the answer to it. Stay away from anybody that comes up. That is the mark of every cult on this planet. When they're up against truth, they have to change the truth to maintain what they want to keep teaching. We don't change nothing here. And that's what you do. Uh, We know, see, what the difference is based on the doctrine of spiritual circumcision, different salvations. We know why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when, Paul, uh, uh, when Paul's talking about unsaved people and he calls them fornicators, and then he talks in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 about Christians, and he doesn't call them fornicators, he calls them people who commit fornication. And the average person reads both of those and never sees the fact that he called one fornicators and the other one he never called fornicators. He just called them Christians that commit fornication. You know why? They're not the same. And the reason they're not the same is salvation isn't the same. And it goes back to the doctrine of spiritual circumcision. And once you become a new creature in Christ Jesus, you can never be a fornicator. You can be a Christian that fornicates, but fornication is an unsaved man, whether he fornicates or not, because he's guilty of the law that he breaks. That is one of the greatest single doctrines in the Bible that you lose when you fall apart dispensationally. You know, we know how to lay out the book of Acts. 
that we don't get fouled up in it. We know how to lay out the book of Hebrews so we don't make it to Hebrew Christians. We know how to deal with the book of Matthew so we don't wind up getting caught in some heresy. We know how to lay out the book of Romans, the book of James, the first and second Peter. We know the difference between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in Paul's writings. Why? Because we are dispensationalists and we deal with rightly dividing the word of truth. And we know that the answers to all these hard doctrinal questions are only found in a biblical dispensational format where you rightly divide the book correctly. And I'll, I'll lay them all out for you as, as we go through. Now, the fourth one, our last one, will what we call hyper-dispensationalist. And a hyper-dispensationalist or an ultra-dispensationalist uh, is a guy who cuts up the Bible so much that there's really nothing left. Now, you're going to find a lot of people get into this today. And you're going to find all the people that get into it are all of the same caliber. None of them want to submit themselves to a local New Testament church ministry. Therefore, they make their church what they read off the internet or the books and they get caught up in this because they have no foundation in the Bible. And so therefore, they never see it. If they stayed in a Bible-believing church, they would get all that they needed to know and understand why you stay away from this. Now, hyperdispensationalism starts with a guy by the name of Bullinger, who lives around 1880 to 1900. His first name is Ethelbert Bullinger. He's an Episcopalian, Church of England. That should be a key for you. He comes up with the teaching that the church starts in Acts 28. Therefore, the teaching of Bullinger rejects baptism because it's before Acts 28, no Lord's Supper, all that you're allowed to accept under the teaching of Bullinger that Paul writes are his prison epistles. He teaches that only the prison epistles that Paul writes after the book of Acts are doctrine to the church, and he rejects everything else. So you'll find that he teaches <coughs> that if you get saved, you shouldn't get baptized. He'll teach in his teaching that if you're saved, you should not take the Lord's Supper. He teaches that the body found in the book of Acts is not the one talked about in the book of Ephesians. Hence, no baptism. Hence, no Lord's Supper. Now, along with this, he come up with the idea that there was not two thieves crucified with Christ. There was four. He teaches that Christ was not crucified on a cross, but a stake. He's also a member in his day, very deeply involved in the Zeldic Society. And the Zeldic Society was a so-called scientific group that believed in his day that the earth was still flat. 
in spite of the Bible telling you in Luke chapter 17, verse 30, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, that it was round. But let's not bring the Bible in. Harry Einsides, who's one of the dispensationalists like we are up into the 50s, he called him a satanic perverter of truth. There's no question about it. Bullinger was a brilliant guy. He really was. Uh, but he is completely off the wall. And again, if somebody would just get into a church, grow, learn under the guidelines and the protection of the church what is right and what is wrong and learn how to rightly divide it, you never have this problem. You got a lot of people who believe what Bullinger taught. The problem is, and here it comes, he puts it out about 1880. There isn't anybody in the history of the earth on planet, on Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and especially Pluto, who ever taught, believed for one single second anything that Bullinger taught. He made it up in 1880. And if that wasn't enough, a little bit later on, he gets another guy who follows him by the name of J.C. O'Hare. He's a radio preacher out of Chicago. He takes Bullinger's original position and he has to change it because he's getting his rear end kicked by too many Bible believers on Bullinger's stand that the body mystery uh, didn't start at the end of Acts because they keep running him back to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 that shows that the body mystery is in effect before the end of the book of Acts. So here again, when you're faced with the Bible, oops, and what does he do? He does the same thing that all of them do when they're faced with a Bible and a Bible believer who knows his Bible. They all adjust their position to bring it in line a little bit closer, still maintaining their heresy. Along with him is a guy by the name of Contilius Stam. And from him comes the Berean Bible Society, who are all uh, hyper-dispensationalists. And so this group now changes again. And now they take the position that the church starts with Paul himself. And they will teach the position and take the position that nobody is, nobody, uh, that the New Testament church or the body now starts with Paul. And here's the beauty of the Bible. If you're not going to teach the Bible correctly, I don't care in what. There's going to be a verse that is, I call them guard junkyard dogs that's going to come around and bite you in the you-know-what. Here's a group that gets up here and says, well, we believe that oh, uh, at the beginning, Bollinger was a little off, and of course, you know, Stan was a little off, or, and now we've come to the place where, uh, or not Stan, but uh, uh, the other guy was a little off, and now we've come to the position that we believe that the body mystery started with Paul. So the real church and the body of being in Christ started with Paul, to which I say, Romans sixteen seven, look at it. You just can't get away from the Bible. You better just come to my church and forget about the rest of them. Look what Paul said in Romans 16. Are you ready for this? Verse 7, Salute Aaronicus and Juna, my kinsmen, 
and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Sorry. You just can't get away from the book. That book will kill you, cook you, and clean you. Or kill you, clean you, and cook you. <clears throat> you see, you can't get away from that. So these guys, along with the rest of the American cult, show up out of Rome, Church of England. And as I said, 1880, uh, nobody in 1900 years believed that. So you have these little guys out here who fall into this stuff. I don't even know what to tell you. Your IQ is above subplant life when it comes to the Bible. Now, we're dispensationalists in a moderate sense. We know from the Bible, somebody would ask me where the church started. I would, I would, I would give you the, the evidence based on what God has done all through the Bible. These guys want to make it a place where God starts the church. Ends on Monday, starts on Tuesday. And, of course, we know from established truth in the Bible, God never did anything that way. Never did. And so we know that dispensationally, the church will go through a transforming and a, and a, to, in its beginning. And the whole key to this is not looking at the Bible and God from a Christian standpoint, as I've told you many, many times, but rather backing up and looking and seeing what God is doing from God's standpoint. And these guys have no clue about the body. I don't know if they just didn't get the word, if they didn't read Romans 16, all the other places, that the body mystery of the church was something that God did not reveal to anybody till he revealed it to Paul. That doesn't mean that God wasn't initiating it based on what Israel did or wasn't going to do with the truth that God gave them after the crucifixion. And of course, that's what he does. So we look at the church from God's mindset, not man's. And I would tell you based on that, that the church or the beginning of the church or the starting of the church follows a transition just like everything else in the Bible. And I would tell you that it's called out in Matthew chapter 10 with the 12 apostles, but nobody knows it because God's still dealing with Israel. I would tell you that it goes into effect in Matthew chapter 28, because the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16, that the New Testament will not come into effect until the death of Christ or the testator. So I would say that it's called out in Matthew 10, goes into effect in Matthew 28. Nobody knows it. At the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1 and 2, it gets empowered, but nobody knows it because they're still asking questions about the kingdom to Israel. God doesn't answer them because they're going to get one more chance. So till that chance in Acts chapter 7 plays out, God has got everything in play. He's got it called out. He's got it into effect. He's got it now empowered. But up to that point, it could go into the millennium and not the church age if that's the way it goes. See what he's doing? Acts chapter 7, Israel makes their final rejection. We start to see the book of Acts transition. And we're now the, the church got caught out in Matthew 10 and nobody knew it. Goes into effect in Matthew 28, nobody knew it. Gets empowered the day of Pentecost and nobody knew it. Now it gets revealed by Paul in Acts chapter 10, 11, 12, up through 20 as my gospel, Romans 2, 16, and now everybody knows it. But he told you, 
that it was kept secret from the foundation of the world. But God knew what he was doing. Their petition is one of total heresy. They are those little fellows who uh, uh, couldn't outline the, the divisions in the book of Acts if your life depended on it. They know nothing about the scriptures. They know a little bit about the Bible, just enough to get them into heresy. They'll pop out all these statements. But when you call them on the carpet to explain their statements and throw an open Bible in front of them, they're as lost as a frog in a hailstorm. And they can't get out of it. So now we understand that the basis here of who we are and what we are and who everybody else is around us. So we'll hold up right there and then throughout the rest of this summer, we will come through these 11 dispensations, tying them into everything I've given you so far and showing you how it all fits into the overall family of God. And when we're done with this, You'll have, a, you'll have as much of the Bible in con- concept as I can give you. And then we can move on into some, some deeper things.